We're back for season six of Phone Calls with Clever People, and today we're having a conversation about assumptions. I think as human beings, we're often quick to make assumptions about people from a distance, and those assumptions can be really far from the reality. However, when you find yourself in a position of leadership or in the public spotlight, there's going to be a whole lot of assumptions made about you. So how do you make sure that you don't start believing everything that's been said? How do you break free from self-limiting beliefs and live a truly unbounded life? In this episode, I'm joined by Maria Thetil, author of Unbounded, whose story can show us what it means to shake off assumptions, live true to who you are, and make the world a better place through your influence and platform. Maria is a multi-talented personality in Australia. She's Miss Universe Australia 2020, a published author, TV presenter, actor, speaker, activist, and creator. Her writing's been featured in various outlets like Nine Honey, Stella Magazine, BuzzFeed, Body and Soul, Mamma Mia, and Women's Agenda. And she's also worked with top brands around the world like Olay, Alfa Romeo, Clinique, and L'Oreal Paris. In her book, Unbounded, she guides readers on self-mastery by exploring the complexities of race, sexuality, gender, and identity. She made waves internationally after coming out as bisexual on air during her appearance on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here in 22. And today she's a campaigner for diversity, inclusion, LGBTQI plus rights, mental health, and gender equality. She's a guest host on Channel 10's The Project and a current panelist on Channel 9's Today Extra and Talking Honey. And as if that wasn't enough, in 2023, she's set to release her own show and make her acting debut. But beyond all of that, Maria's thoughtful with her words, She's generous with her time and she's a delight to be in conversation with. Maria, thank you so much for taking the time to, to join me on Phone Calls with Clever People. So nice to have you here. It's so nice to be here. I can't wait to chat. We've been chatting before I hit record and I, I, you know, those moments when you're chatting and I go, I wish I could go back and record the beginning of that conversation because there was so much <laughs> stuff in there. I thought that too. I was like, yeah, there was some good stuff in there. Well, there'll be some great stuff coming up in this conversation, I have no doubt. One of the things I always do at the start of the podcast is to ask three fast facts, which is where were you born, what was your first job, and then what do you do now? So I was born in Melbourne, Australia. My first job was shoveling potato and gravy off the counter at KFC. And where am I at now was that the last question? Yeah. What I'm doing now is I've, I've since left KFC. and. <laughs> I am an author, I'm a speaker, I'm a media personality and a columnist and I guess an advocate through all of those channels and a former Miss Universe Australia. Maria, you are so many things. I was looking at the list that I was going to say, this is what you are. It was it was so many things. It was advocate, it was author, it was speaker, it was TV personality, it was creator and creative as well after having read your book. Um, there's all these kind of things that you could tick off to say that you're doing and you should be absolutely so proud of it, proud of all the things that you've been able to do. But if you were to take some of those things off the table of what you do and say, well, who are you? What are some of the first words that come to mind for you? Well, if I take away all the things, because I agree, and I love that you said this, because one thing I like to say and remind people in my work is that you are not the things that you do. You are not the list of achievements that you have. So if I take all of that away, I think I'm somebody who is, I just am an intentional, purpose-driven, and happy person. And I'm somebody who just cares about my family. I care about my friends. 
And I'm just passionate about enjoying life with people that I love and doing it intentionally and doing things with purpose. Oh my gosh, tick, tick, tick. I love all this. It's the same. I mean, I don't know what your experience has been like, but I find often one of the first things that we do when we meet a person is we try to make small talk and we always ask the question, so so what do you do? And I, I know it's meant in the most kind of, sometimes the most genuine way, but it, below the surface, sometimes I feel like it's like, well, what do you do? And based on your answer to those questions, I will create a list of assumptions that I make about you based on what you do. A hundred percent. And you know why it's so funny? Because my friends have this running joke. Mind you, I will just clarify, I did actually work in HR. So it, it's, it makes sense that this is something I used to do in my past life. But whenever I meet new people, that is something that ends up coming up. Like I, within minutes, we're chatting about what we do and yeah, I want to know about their career and their goals. But unpacking it, I realized that it's not actually their job title. I just love seeing people's eyes light up when they talk about what they love and what they do. But I've since realized, because exactly what you said, we hear about what someone does and then we start to form these ideas about who they are and where they fit in the world. Better questions to get to the essence of what someone is is asking them, well, what sort of sparks you? What do you love? What do you love to do? What are you excited about? And I think then if we were to ask questions and lead with questions like that as opposed to questions that very quickly um, are designed to help us digest someone and put them in a box, I think we would do a much better job at getting to know somebody at their core beyond you know, the, the boxes that we put them in and that society puts yeah. people in. So, uh, yeah, it's huge. I agree. One of my, yeah, one of my favorite questions that I ask people is, um, what's a personality trait that you admire in someone that you know or love? Um, and you know, for me, I think of people that I, uh, that are close to me and one of the characteristics for me is, is humility. And I just, there's something really beautiful about a person who can be confident, but also humble at the same time. And I see that in so many people that I love. Is there Someone that comes to mind that you can think of and a characteristic or a personality trait that you admire in them? Oh, yeah. I think my mum. If I think of something I really admire about her, she has the most generous, beautiful heart and this wonderful ability to see not only the good in other people, but the humanity in other people. And when I say she sees the humanity in other people, my mum is very empathetic Um, and I think irrespective of who someone is or what they've done or what they need, she will always have a generous giving heart and ability to see like, what is something I can do to help this person? It doesn't matter who they are, whether they've wronged her or, you know, it's somebody who's needing something from her. She's always thinking, well, you know, we're all the same. And if, you know, we have the ability to help someone give, give, give until you can't give anymore. That's her philosophy. And, you know, sometimes it's to her detriment. Um, I think she is just so giving with her heart. She could probably protect it a little bit more, but I think that's a really beautiful quality that after, you know, 50 years of life, she's never jaded. Like, not Mm. ever jaded about anything. She's just open. And I really do believe very good things come to people with an open heart. And I hope Mm. that I can have even a tenth of that quality to be able to see the humanity in someone else, irrespective of who they are, what they do where the world will tell you they fit. Um, I think when you're able to see the humanity in someone else, you remember your own. And I think I say that in the book, actually. I talk about that in the book. I think it's key to recognizing your own divinity and being in touch with that. So, Yeah, it was interesting that you said that because as you were talking, now, I I should be really honest, and I I don't know you personally. I only know a version that I get to see from a distance, which is through your book and through your uh, online presence and 
Um, I, I think we originally connected on LinkedIn and that was probably my first um, connection to you. Maybe it was when you were in HR even. And oh I, it was because my wife was saying, hey, have you heard of Maria? And I, I was like, no. And then I, I looked you up on LinkedIn. I was like, oh my gosh, we're connected on LinkedIn. I was we're trying connected. to figure out how that connected. <laughs> and and sh- and since then, she was like, we, we were having a conversation about you before inviting you on the podcast. And she said, she's just um, really sharp and really intelligent and has such an incredible um contribution to so many public issues and, and conversations. And I, and I, as I started kind of researching a little bit more about you, looking at some of your work, I went, oh my gosh, there's an incredible voice that you bring to a conversation um, and many conversations as an advocate and as an ally. And for people who are maybe similar to me, just discovering you, I, I don't want to go deep into your story because so much of it is in the book, but can you give us maybe like a bit of a hop and a skip through your timeline from yeah. maybe just from when you were young, growing up in Melbourne to kind of where you are, some of those real standout moments for you that maybe could help people understand a bit of your background and story? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll just start by saying thank you. That was so generous. I just sort of sat with that and took that in. I think one thing I want to do is get really good at gracefully taking wonderful compliments when people appreciate things about you instead of doing my usual thing of like self-deprecating humor. <laughs> so I, I want to say thank you for that. Um, but I guess, you know, if you don't know me, um, so I am a daughter of Indian immigrants. I was born and raised in Melbourne and I only recently came out as being queer, came out at 28, I'm 30 now, um, but I was raised in a very culturally conservative family and a very staunchly Catholic family. My dad actually used to be an ex-priest. So I grew up in a very, in very conservative communities and, um, I did have mental health struggles. I did have, you know, complexes about my own sense of identity, not feeling like I belonged, not feeling Indian enough to be Indian, not feeling Australian enough to be Australian. Because as a third culture kid, I I felt like my roots were anchors and I always felt different to, you know, my white peers that I so desperately wanted to belong in and growing up in a time where diversity isn't celebrated. All I would do is chameleon myself into these spaces. And so the way for me to, um, I guess, validate myself and my own sense of self-worth was by sort of fitting what was conventionally acceptable qualities for a South Asian woman. And that was to be smart because I was a stereotype for a lot of Indians as a model minority. So I did really well in school because it, it allowed me to succeed and feel like, oh, I'm like living up to my potential, but in a conservative, acceptable way. So I went to uni. I did two degrees, backgrounds. I had my first one in psychology. Second one was a master in management. I majored in HR. And I was actually nominated for a scholarship to Harvard based on academic merit. I turned it down. I worked in corporate. So I spent four years working across the public and private sector in HR, my most recent job in the Victorian government. And at the same time, I was starting to recognize that little girl in me who used to love the arts and creativity, but gave that all up to be good enough. Um, I went back and I did a makeup qualification at the same time that I was doing my master's. And so while I was working for the government, I started posting on social media like five or six years ago. And I was sharing beauty content and things like that, but then also speaking up, starting to speak up and find a voice where I was speaking about a lack of diversity in the beauty industry and some of my lived experiences. Because for the first time, social media was a space where I didn't need permission from anybody to speak my truth. And it started to garner a community and then in 2019, I saw an Indian-Australian lawyer win Miss Universe Australia. And I thought, holy hell, this might be totally deluded me, but I'm going to throw my hat in the ring because if this comes off, 
maybe I can make a difference. Maybe I can make a contribution bigger than what I'm doing in my HR role on socials at the moment. And I ended up winning Miss Universe Australia. And it was a pretty big moment for the country and, and globally because I was only the third woman of color to do it. And I faced a lot of racism in my time. And I think I was probably one of the first few to actually speak about it whilst I was competing for Miss Universe. I think a lot of the time, maybe it's scary for contestants to speak about stuff that might be unsavory or political. But I was like, the whole reason I came into this career was to do that. So I don't care how many feathers I'm going to ruffle. And I spoke a lot and ignited a national conversation about our identity, about racism, this, that, and the other. Did well at Miss Universe, came back, came out. And I ended up, you know, long story short, getting catapulted into a media career where now I'm a columnist, an author, I do TV segments, I'm moving into acting. And um, it's just this this multi-hyphen media career where I'm showing people actually I'm not bounded by the things I once was and I'm going to I'm gonna make it for me and those like me. And it opens me up to so many more people because the media career is so multifaceted. I reach a lot of different people with the same messages as when I was a little HR girly in the office talking about diversity within the transport department of Victoria. So... Um, I think I've always been true to me and it's always been the same intention, the same purpose, but it's just been beautiful to unlearn the narratives that I had. And now I get to do that in my career and teach other people to do the same. Wow. I mean, for people who are just discovering you, one of the things that is always so challenging to learn about a person from a distance is some of those things that are lived experiences for people. We we see public experiences. So we hear, we, we read a column that you write and you put it out and everyone builds a bit of a picture of who you are based on the column that you write. Or someone will have one encounter with you in an event and um, have an experience with you and build a narrative of you. Or they read through some news article somewhere talking about your experience in the Miss Universe and and then they'll build an assumption around you. As human beings, we tend to kind of create these assumptions of people from a distance that are often very misaligned with the reality of the lived experiences of people when we're up close. And I'm wondering whether, you know, some of those um, big assumptions that people have made about you over the years, are there any kind of big ones that come to mind for you out of that lived experience that, uh, yeah, just people have made over the years from a distance that haven't really hadn't had taken the time to get to know you? You're right. People will look at you and they might read an article about you and all of a sudden they think they know you. And I remember when I was in HR and before I got my very last role, that was a really good job. I remember there was a male recruiter in the office um, for the agency that had gotten me this gig. There was a male recruiter in the office who had said something to the effect of, because I had a friend who worked in the office and she told me, um, the remark was, oh, I just bet the way she landed that gig was she walked into a room for male managers and they liked what they saw. When the reality was, I was actually for an interviewed by two women for 30 minutes and I got the gig. And I remember thinking, okay, so this is somebody who's looked at me and they literally, there's, there's just no willingness to look at the degrees, the academic achievement, the experience, maybe the fact that I did well in an interview, I had value to add. No willingness to even look. It was just, this is what she looks like and I'm going to make that decision. And I've realized and I've learned as I've gotten older. So that was mid twenties, I think when that happened, now I'm 30. Um, over the years, there are people who will do that. They will look at you through one specific box. And so when I did Miss Universe, there were people who very openly expressed sentiments to me like, you know, do you reckon, and and I remember having this conversation with someone when I got back from the competition, it was something like, do you think maybe the organization, um, what they were trying to do was appeal to a certain market by picking you? And I'm like, what do you mean? And it was like, well, 
there's a diversity appeal there. And I'm like, okay, I see where this is going. All my, you know, I, I've had people sort of imply that even now some of the jobs I get, it's because being a queer woman of color is a trendy thing. Um, those assumptions that, well, you're there because you're ticking a box, it completely undermines the value, the lived experience, your rich history. And I fully get it because, you know, we're wired to do that. We're wired to judge people and try and make them digestible so that we can very easily understand this is who they are. This is their proximity to me. This is where they fit. This is where I fit. This is the world we live in. Um, so I think the beauty of doing the work that I do and getting to write the book that I did, and especially the way I entered the media, which is through Miss Universe, is, you know, from my, my ethnicity to the, to, like I said, the way I entered the media to talking openly about my sexuality. I am very aware that these things make people form assumptions very quickly, but I've proven in my career that there's a longevity there between these little moments. And I have all the different mediums where I show that there's so much more there. And, you know, being, you know, a queer woman of color or, or being a Miss Universe, or being, it doesn't mean you're not educated. It doesn't mean you haven't got this experience or that you don't have these ideas or whatever. And I, I love that I get to show that in my career. And I hope that the people that I'm impacting, they take that away too, that they are more than the assumptions that people make and that they don't have to subscribe to them and that, you know, just because someone else can't see you beyond a limiting belief or a box, it has no bearing on who you are. And you and I were having a great chat about that. You know, we were chatting about these sorts of things and also um, not aligning to your achievements or the little markers of your identity that are easy for people to see. You are more than that. You just have to be able to come back to that, which is something that I really needed to have a strong sense of self to be able to crack it in what can be a very intense, intense career that is very taxing on your mental health. Yeah, I'm so glad you touched on that. And and you kind of use this word a few times of this narrative. And even one of the things you said in the book, I think the line you used, I was, I was too old to enter the modeling industry, too short for Miss Universe and not Australian enough for mainstream. And there's all these kind of assumptions that we... Um, we hear from other people, but I would suggest there's also assumptions or uh, ideas and beliefs that we have about ourselves that influence how yeah. we show up. And so how do you, in your experience, having had so many people make all these assumptions about you your entire life, then create helpful beliefs and ideas about yourself when everybody's telling you who they think you are? Yeah. And it's exactly that. I so relate to that because I remember having this chat with one of my managers. I think I was 20 at the time or 27 it was when I had put in an application to Miss Universe Australia but before I found out that I was a finalist in December and so I remember sitting at the time I was still working in corporate and I sat down with my manager and we were actually talking about how I was going to juggle because my social media presence was kind of growing and I was starting to go to events and we're like how are we going to make this work with your corporate job and she said something to me like Maria look I remember what it was like to be your age, okay? I wanted to change the world too. But at some point, grow up and you just get you're happy with what you have and you realize that, you know, the world is, you, you can't change the world. And I've been just sitting there and I was like, yeah, yeah. And in my head, I'm like, I'm going to show you. <laughs> I hate being told I can't do something because I've been told that all my life. And I think when I first started to question those beliefs, it was more like early to mid-20s I started to have the shift. Um, at the time, yeah, I was working in HR jobs. I was in a relationship with a beautiful person, but I was starting to become 
you know, really, uh, like the the sexual curiosity around exploring, you know, my identity that was developing, and I was sort of in this place of, okay, the thing to do, and that people expect of me, is to stay in the good job because I'm very lucky to have it. Stay in the relationship because we've been together for a while, and everyone expects us to get engaged and go along, and just shut up and just do the thing. And it started to make me anxious, imagining myself getting older and looking back and going, what the hell did I do? And I started to realize, oh my God, is the pain of regret going to be worse than the fear of the what if that I have right now? And I reasoned that, yeah, it would be because tomorrow isn't promised. I have one life and I never want to look back and see other people living their dreams. And I'm like, what the hell am I doing? So when I started posting on social media, ironically, like people talk about social media being this really toxic place and so on and so forth. But for me at the time, when I was like 23, 24, and I was doing that makeup qualification, pursuing something creative was the first step while I was doing the super academic degree, which I graduated from, you know, with first class honors from. Like that was a thing that got me the Harvard nomination. I was also then finishing my lectures, going to a makeup academy and just doing the beauty thing. And I remember one of my peers, and it's in the book, she said to me like, oh my God, are you going to become one of those makeup girls? And I was like, oh no, 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 it's just this thing that I love. And I started calling it a pet project and diminishing what I loved, diminishing, diminishing what I loved. And so when I started posting on social media and it started off with just, here's a beautiful red lipstick that I found. um, And people would say things to me like, Wow, finally, a brown person friendly lipstick. Love that. And I'm like, oh, okay. Like there are other people who are appreciating this. Then the messaging started getting different. Started, I started speaking a little bit more, a little bit more. It was a little bit more precarious for me, but I realized by sharing more and more of myself in line with what felt good, what brought me joy, what's, what was fun to me, that was what started to help me shed those unhelpful beliefs because the thing was I was so obsessed with living up to other people's ideas of what like a smart, respectable woman was, like the degree impressed them, the fact that I was, you know, in HR, everyone's like, oh, how good. No one was impressed by the fact that I was doing a makeup qualification. It was learning to give up what impressed other people for what made me happy. And the more I pursued that, the more it made me challenge, hang on, this is feeling good. I'm going to have to shed this to pursue it. And by doing that and putting one foot in front of the other, it's got me here. But it started with, giving up other people's ideas of me for me. It's like, what do what do I care more about? I care more about being fulfilled than impressing someone else. Um, it's not an easy thing to do, but it's worth it. What I, what I love about your story is there is this um, tendency for human beings to live an outside-in uh, way of life, which is we take the stories that other people say about us and you know, they're other people's interpretations and assumptions and then we internalize them and then we start to live out of other people's assumptions or beliefs about us. And we almost create that self-fulfilling prophecy in the way that we live because of the assumptions other people place on us. But what I love about your reframe on all of this is you go, rather than trying to live up to other people's assumptions or beliefs or ideas about us, start to internalize what is it that I actually believe about myself, that I of who I'm meant to be and the voice that I'm supposed to have. And out of that, you start to live out of that internalized, more helpful belief. And as a result, start to change the narratives of people around you. And there's this one quote that I love in the book that I highlighted, which was, um, I once believed I needed to sneak my way into the places that I wanted to occupy, quietly opening the window and hoping that no one heard the crack. 
but I got tired of being quiet. I stopped begging to be considered for my dream life and decided that instead of sneaking in, I was going to stride right in like I did on the runway. And I just, for me, that change of frame from I'm going to try to live up to other people's expectations of me to I'm going to live out of who I am and stride in like I own the place is such a shift in mindset. Do you think it's part of the rebel and the shed that you talk about in your book? What are the big things that help create that kind of a shift? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a, I love that. I, I, I can't tell you how surreal it is to hear you quote my book, but here's a funny analogy. And the reason is like, I love like this is saying phone calls with clever people, right? And I'm specifically choosing examples when I'm teaching you how I learned this stuff, because it's very easy now for people to look at my career and they say, wow, she's so successful. And her body of work is contributing and it's impactful. But the stuff that got me here, that sparked me joy, are things that people would traditionally look down on or diminish. They're typically female-coded interests, which we know is often undervalued and undermined. And so with the catwalk analogy, I remember as part of my training for Miss Universe, I didn't really do much because a lot of it was campaigning for inclusivity and speaking on TV and stuff. But one thing I did do was I learned to catwalk. And a lot of people try and use that against you with, with you know, when they judge Miss Universe and say, it's so sexist. Like you're walking on a runway in a bikini. And I'm like, well, I'm learning to walk in this body with confidence and agency. And whilst I can argue that, I think Miss Universe has a lot to do to be more inclusive. I want to see more trans people on the runway. I want to see more people of different body shapes and things. That is still a skill. And the thing that I love about those catwalking sessions I did for was it didn't just prepare me to walk confidently on the runway. That walk and that ability to hold my posture and hold myself, I use that when I walk into my client meetings and I'm negotiating contracts or when I'm walking into a space and I want to show people this is who I am. And it is that mindset and that energy of I am going to live and show up out of that belief. And I watched a show, and I think a a lot of people probably heard of it, Emily in Paris. And one of the things that it depressed upon me was I loved the fashion in it and I remember thinking to myself this year, I'm going to dress up every day for the life that I want. And I'm going to put conscious effort into how I present, into how I show up, the energy that I bring to meetings, knowing my value and my worth. And I think it is that. And it's a mindset. It's not saving the nice outfit or saving the dream or saving the hobby you want to pursue for a later time in life or a special occasion. You are the occasion. Your life today, it is that. You know, if there was ever a time to shop for any of that, it's right now because nothing else is promised. And if you do that now, you're changing, you said, the narrative, the way that you think about yourself, but it then does shift the way that people perceive you. And then as a result, the opportunities, the thoughts, the actions, and everything that's, you know, forming your reality, that changes too. It's a tangible way to do that. So yeah, that you do need to shed. You do need to shed a lot, like I said in the, say in the chapter, people, places, and things that don't serve the highest concept for you or your life. And you need to rebel against old conditioning. And that's integral to that. Yeah. I mean, people who will be listening to this, a lot of the audience are people who are in leadership positions and people who are running businesses. And one of the challenges that we find is when you step into a leadership position, not just talking about a business, but in any capacity as a leader with someone who has influence, there's that immediately immediate internal feeling like I don't feel like the leader that I'm supposed to be right now. Um, people are looking at me like I'm a leader. Maybe I've got a title. Maybe I've got an opportunity to be a leader. Um, and what I love about this is that when you um, when you tell yourself I don't belong in this position, I don't, be, I, I'm not a leader. Why would people follow me? You start to live out of that place, and it yes. influences how other people see you. 
But when you can reframe some of those internal narratives about yourself to say, you know what, I'm going to own it. Even though I don't feel necessarily like I've got all the skills, all the confidence right now, I'm going to choose to tell myself something that's more helpful. And I'm going to be the leader rather than show up and try to pretend or or kind yeah. of, you know, fudge my way through it. I'm going to be the leader. I'm going to act like I'm confident. I'm going to um, change those helpful beliefs. Everyone around you starts to go, oh my gosh, how are you so confident in all this? Yeah. And it, it comes across in a different way, right? It does. And I have this story. When I worked in HR, I remember one of my senior managers, she was a very impressive woman. I'm talking a senior manager in engineering. Um, this is, we're talking transport, right? Like largely male dominated. And she was thriving. And I remember having a conversation with her where she told me about her child. And she said, but I don't actually like to talk about that around people. And I asked her, I'm like, why? And she said, I just worry about what that perception, you know, what that will mean for the perception of me as a leader will be. And I found it so interesting that this person thought in order to be perceived as a strong and capable leader, she thought she needed to shed something that wasn't inherently her. And that's not something she's born believing, but that's something the society is conditioned. We, uh, you know, over time, we have conditioned people to think that being a mother or being a parent is somehow a hindrance to your ability to show up professionally. Um, we have conditioned particularly women to think that they need to choose between different, you know, career or parenthood. Um, and she had internalized these sensibilities and then was living out of it, which then was affecting her ability to show up confidently. And what message is she then reinforcing and subconsciously judging her own team on? So there was a lot to unpack there. And I think for a lot of leaders, um, it's interesting. And I and I will confidently speak on this because the thing is, we have this idea of what a leader looks like. And if you close, I read this amazing book, I think it's by Kemi Nekbapil. She's written a book called Power and she does this exercise. She's um, a thought leader in this space. She coaches women and executives and I've done a, another great chat with her. She does this exercise where she says to people and I'll ask listeners to do it now, close your eyes. And if I say picture a high powered CEO or an executive, who comes to mind? And more often than not, it is a middle-aged white man. And I think the thing that people who are in leadership positions, what they need to get their head around is that a leader doesn't look a certain way. A leader doesn't have to live a certain life or have certain hobbies or present in any capacity. It's about the value you add and your ability to influence. And I do think with the digital revolution and with social media and the way that things are going, we have seen a change in the way power is distributed. Because people like me, who once upon a time relied on traditional uh, models and and pathways to get to those positions, for me, I thought if I was ever going to be a leader, I needed to be subdued. I needed to play the game and follow the steps in corporate to get to that certain point. But I'm out here being true to who I am. I'm wearing what I want. I'm saying what I want. I'm not shying away from lived experiences. And I've found myself in a position where I have influence in media and across entire communities. And now those CEOs, they're coming to me to talk to their businesses, to work with people. And it's because I didn't buy the idea that you need to look or be a certain way to be a leader. And I really hope we start to see a shift in how people with that capacity, how they show up, because that's how we change it. You be the change that you need. Don't change to be what you think you want to be. Yeah. I mean, so profound. And for people who are listening, it, it felt like there was that moment of, um, it felt like you're getting a pep talk from a friend, like going, hey, stop limiting yourself. And it was a really nice moment. And 
one of the things that I find when, in the clients that I work with, we do a lot around storytelling and people will always say, my story is not of interest, my story is not of value, or my story is you know, too personal. And the, the challenge with um, when we get out, we, we're really good at telling public stories, right? We're good at telling stories about you know, Barack Obama or we're good at telling stories about, um, you know, even per, like more private stories in terms of um, other colleagues at work. I met a colleague the other day and they told me this, but then when we have to tell our own personal story, we go, oh, does, do people really care about that? And yet it's our stories that when we tell stories help us to connect at a more human level beyond the position or beyond the title. And I know that your book, Unbounded, is so full of your stories that people are going to really connect with and resonate with. And one of the things I loved um, at the end, uh, kind of throughout the book, there's this shift in the narrative. One of the things you, you said at the start was um, when you won Miss Universe, the titles were like Melbourne model crowned Miss Universe, Australian uh, daughter of an Indian migrant wins Miss Universe Australia. And there were all these kind of narratives that other people were putting on you. And then towards the end of it, you, you started to live out of your story and out of your narrative and the stories around you started to change. You said, you know, I think the quote was, I was too, too, um, uh, once considered too old for entering mod- modeling industry, too short for Miss Universe. And then suddenly the discourse changed and now they were calling me small but mighty. And I think for me, having read the book, there was a real reminder that we, if we don't like the narrative that's around our life, we can't change what other th- people think about us, but we can change the story that we start to project to the world and how we start to show up in the world that over time can change some of those narratives uh, about our lives. And so um, thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, one of the things I love to do is give people a little bit of a soapbox um, and you can stand on it for a moment, maybe like 30 to 60 seconds. And just imagine I'm not here, but you've got the in- entire audience that are listening to me right now. And and if there's one thing you want to say to them right now that comes out of the heart of this conversation, just you to them, jump on that soapbox. What do you want to say to them right now? What I would say to them is if there's anything I try and communicate in my book, but also in my work broadly, it's the importance of agency. It's agency to be the change that you need, to be the representation that you need, and to live a life that is true, purposeful, safe, and free to you. And if you're ever going to disappoint anyone when it comes to your life, do not let it be you. That's what I would say. Oh my gosh. I love that. I love that. Maria, your your book is deeply profound. Um, people will get a lot from it. It's it, you, you talk about it as these principles um, and every chapter gives people something to do. It's, it's both a historical journey, it's a current journey, but it's also packed with actionable tools for people to be able to use and reflective practice and questions and um, it's a really valuable tool. So um, they can pick it up in all good bookstores right now. But what are some of the other ways that people can connect with you? If they want to connect with me, they can do so on LinkedIn. Um, I love connecting with people on LinkedIn and keeping up with work. They can follow me for a little bit more of an unfiltered, <laughs> fun version on TikTok, um, Instagram. And there'll be a podcast coming soon where they can listen in. So, yeah, oh my lots gosh, of ways. Amazing. Look. Yeah. If, look, I, I don't think um, anyone assu- like relates LinkedIn to fun and unfiltered. Um, so I'm sure <laughs> it's not. It's it's a very professional space. But yes. I'll put all the details of how people can connect with you and how they can uh, get a hold of the book. Um, and I just want to say a huge thank you. Um, in the book, you use this language, and I think I believe it was your dad's language, um, where he talked about footprints on the earth and yeah. leaving a footprint. And and I, as I was reading that, I couldn't help but feel that the work that you're doing and the voice that you're having into the conversation that is a global conversation on many topics and issues right now is leaving a set of footprints that are really valuable because I think it's providing a pathway for a lot of people who haven't had those set of footprints to walk in 
before to be able to follow in your footsteps. And so thank you for being here. Thanks for being part of the conversation. It's been such a privilege and a joy. That is such an honor. You couldn't have you couldn't have honored me more by telling me that I'm living up to what my dad wants. So thank you. That's everything. Thank you, Maria. That's it for another week of phone calls with clever people. Thank you so much for taking the time to invest in you by checking out the podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the episodes as they're released. And of course, I'd love to hear how this has added value for you in the reviews. Have a fantastic week.